This episode is brought to you by Monkey Seed Dispersal. Monkey Seed Dispersal. It's shitty, but it gets the job done. This is Wild Green Streams for Ecological Fiends. I'm Rhett. I'm Iona. I'm Curtis. I'm Roy. And today we have Jared K. Anderson joining us. Jared, otherwise known as the Crypto Naturalist, has built a large audience with his strange, vibrant appreciations for nature, ranging from optimistic contemplations of mortality to appreciations of single-celled organisms. Jared is forever writing love letters to the natural world. Jared, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. What is the Crypto Naturalist? Yeah, that seems like a reasonable question. It's it's hard to answer sometimes. Um, so Crypto Naturalist started as a podcast, um, oh, four or five years ago. Um, and I was working as an academic, as an administrator for um, a higher university. And I thought to myself, okay, I do a lot of boring things with words. What, what would I do if I could just do whatever I wanted for fun? Um, and so, you know, I have a background in, in literature and teaching English, um, but like in my undergrad, I graduated with twice the number of credits I needed because I was also such a zoology nerd, um, and I've always been a nature nerd. So I'm like, okay, well, I love nature, the natural world, but I also love fictitious um, creatures and mythology and cryptids, and so... And I grew up watching the sort of um, nature programs like um, Wild America with Marty Stauffer and all of these sort of single voice weirdo um, nature narrators. Um, so I mushed them all together into one podcast where you have um, a, a um, kind of passionate, loving, quirky narrator who is treating cryptids as if they're part of a, um, of the old school nature documentary style was the idea for the podcast. But, uh, I've also been a poet for the last 30 years and written nature poetry. Um, so a lot of what I post online is, um, scraps of poetry and sort of affirmations, positive stuff, appreciations of the natural world. And so I developed this kind of two-part thing where some people followed me and liked the podcast and some people think of me as a strange online nature poet and sometimes the poetry fans don't know about the podcast and the podcast fans don't follow the poetry so it, it can be confusing to explain sometimes but in my mind it's all sort of related i've heard it described before as a mix between david attenborough and the x-files yeah i've gotten bob ross before thrown in there too um oh i see it but um yeah, you know, it's just um, sometimes I, I like the idea of taking fictitious things to remind people about um, sort of the wonder they had about nature when they were kids that can get lost sometimes from it becoming commonplace. Like when you're a kid, you understand that when you flip over a rock and, you know, see a little isopod or a red-backed salamander or something, you're full of awe. And... Um, Sometimes I think looking through a lens of fiction can remind an adult that like, like, you know, I always make up my own cryptids, but you think about like the idea of Bigfoot or something. It's like, why would Bigfoot be more fantastic than a gorilla? 
because you haven't seen it, like just just find the mental space where you can see elements of the natural world in a new way, and I think you can kind of recapture that sense of wonder. So that's that's why I like to come to it through fiction. I always had the same thought about uh, about dinosaurs, where I was like, if they weren't extinct, would people be as interested when we currently have like rhinos and ostriches and things like like giraffes yeah. have in like you just look at a giraffe and you if someone like if you didn't know and someone was like oh this is an animal you'd be like you're insane no that's would it, not would anybody would anybody care about dodo birds if they were still ar- around so yeah i i definitely agree with the dislike well with the dodo birds like what yeah with the dodo birds like one example i i, I give uh, are tinamus y- 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 y'all know what tinamus are Tinamus are they're not, yeah, they're not exactly they're not exactly flightless. They're like sister to uh, phylogenetically to ratites. So ratites are your your ostriches, your cassowaries, your emus, your rheas, and they're in South America, and like not quite flightless, but like you know they're not great flyers, but like they're just these chunky birds. They're just like 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 on the ground, like eating seeds and stuff, like. They don't have bills as big as dodos, but, you know, it's still like they exist, you know. You have ground pigeons, which are the closest thing to dodos these days, like like Victoria ground pigeons. And like whenever I talk to kids and like people about animals and about wildlife, I always remember like the example you gave, Iona, about giraffes. Like like I'll, I'll bring up animals that like are seen as mundane that we take for granted, like giraffes, like elephants, turtles. I'll bring up turtles a lot, frogs a lot, too. Because I always ask pe- people, like, consider your standard animal. Like, 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 consider your standard animal and then consider consider a turtle. Like, think about a turtle. Th- actually, think about it. And, like, it's, it's kind of messed up. Like, like, the idea of a turtle is kind of messed up. It's a clam lizard. It's a clam, <laughs> clam lizard. lizard. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's like yeah. its its skeleton is on the outside. Like, like that shell is part of its skeleton. It's, and it's, it's on the outside. And it's cool with it. Jared, what was the latest real-life animal that made you feel that way? Um... I live between a park, um, so sort of a, a small copse of trees and a cemetery that's also an arboretum. And um, we've had Cooper's hawks fledging in there. So I've been watching them a lot lately. Um, and they do they do the sort of loafing behavior where you have these young hawks and they'll kind of like slump and, and sun themselves on the top of gravestones. And um, I share a back fence with that cemetery, and I, I keep being able to to watch um, like a collection of three hawks playing together. Just I I saw it I don't know a couple of weeks ago, and I I keep going over there to visit them. So the Cooper's hawks, I sort of did a dive into um um into Cooper's hawks in general lately. So they've been my fascination lately. Um, and uh, I had I had been volunteering at the Ohio Wildlife Center, which is an uh, animal rescue, and so I've 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 watched them in that context too, and um, just as like this weird sort of sports car car of the like hawk world, you know that they have to sort of go between trees and you know dive between branches and. Um, it's just very different behavior from like the red-tailed hawks or the other most common um, diurnal bird of prey around here. So, yeah, yeah, I, I I just love watching them. That's cool. It's always so like when you really think about basically almost any animal, even the most common one, it's there's always like if you just like 
switch your lens of it a little bit you're like wow this is incredible that you exist at all or let you do anything that you do i think and like you know especially with me i really like insects i think part of why i like insects so much is that they're first of all very easy to observe you don't need any money you could just go outside and they're there and there's also so much like diversity in them and they're always so interesting and they're always around and it just sort of is like a little reminder of like oh yeah there are like incredible things right outside my doorstep like you don't have to go very far to find an animal that is fantastical that has almost no brain cells but is like a magnificent flyer like it's amazing my um my son is almost three years old and just recently he started to occasionally be up when the sun goes down and so we have a backyard that's always full of fireflies and he's just now discovering them and so he'll ask about them in his sort of imperfect language way and um so yeah, I'll just go outside and in the dark and try to run around chasing the fireflies. And I just, it chokes me up every time. It's just like, oh yeah, this, like why, there's bioluminescence floating around in the backyard. Like it, most people don't think of where they live as, um, as I don't know, as, as a home to interesting animals because we get, our senses get so dulled by familiarity and, uh, yeah, L- little kids are really good for that too, reminding you of what is really sort of jaw-droppingly amazing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, ta- it takes you back to the enjoyment of when you were a kid and you were learning everything for the first time because and everything is so new and so like, oh my gosh, this is so fantastical. And you're like, oh yeah, it's like reminding me that everything really is fantastical if you just like look at it a different way. Yeah, I said something to that effect about um, electric eels a while ago and people pointed me to a stand-up comedian named Pete Holmes who did a routine on it. And his point was like, you would just accept these things when you're told when you're <laughs> young. It's like, oh, there's the eels that are electric. And like, okay, um, you know, how is that any different from a Pokemon? Like, it's not, that's... <laughs> It's just yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, oh, some of them are real. Uh, no dinosaurs used to be real. Yeah, there used to be dragons walking around. Anyway, yeah. go to school. I was yeah. just listening to your episode um, in Montana with the sky whales, and I had a similar thought. Like, I, I totally picked up on what you're doing here a little bit in, a, in an organic way where I thought about, so the way the whales work is that there are microbes. These are real. There are microbes in the atmosphere that, that caused the weather maybe they they can alter uh, the freezing point of water so they can come down as hail and it's part of their their life cycle and how they get around the microbes are, are real the sky whales are not just to, right. to clarify but, but the thing, the thing, <laughs> this, these are know. these are real but the thing that that jared made out of this is that he made sky whales that come together out of many organisms to form these gigantic uh, uh whales that live up there um, and then sometimes they disperse and sometimes they come together. And I thought about when I was listening to that, what I thought was, oh, there's a ton of stuff like that in the ocean, like man of wars um, and other things like, you know, similar ideas. Tuna, uh, and tuna I'm just totally used Owens. to it. Yeah. 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 I, 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 if you just started talking about man of war, I've been like, yeah, yeah, it's a, you know, compound organism, blah, blah, blah. You know, but, but put it in the sky and it's, it's suddenly it's mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. And I remember when I wrote that episode, I had just been reading about the microorganisms you were talking about. You know, it's and it's right there. It's it's. You just you slap a little bit of a fantastical element on it, and and it, I think it's a short walk back to why you should be that amazed with 
everything outside your front door. Yeah. Even just now in this podcast, like to, to introduce the sky whale concept, I just told said that there are bacteria that cause hailstorms and we just yada 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 that (laughs) that was the build-up that wasn't the point you know (laughs) it's crazy yeah jared do you have a a, any personal favorites of the um i almost said fictitious cryptids which implies real cryptids (laughs) but i guess i guess everything's a crypt everything's a cryptid until it isn't Um, until it isn't yeah yeah i'll I'll copy and um um other uh other i can't offhand think of other other proven cryptid i mean i mean i i could i could go on a tangent on like actual cryptozoology like not like cryptozoology of like cryptids but like the actual scientific cryptic cryptic speciation which is a different thing yeah um in which case there are hundreds and thousands oh oh don't get me started on how often I have to tell people that the prefix crypto doesn't refer mostly to currency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just it, 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 it's it's just an undescribed species. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! It's just, that's all it is. It's like not. Oh, it's yeah. like if if I, I it's like a UFO can be a bird if I don't know what kind it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But uh, back exactly. back to my question, um, Jared, do you have any uh, personal favorites of the the cryptids you invented that you'd uh, like to? share hmm. or or just any that spring to mind in one of the early episodes the orbital kingfisher is one that i think of a lot um kingfishers are one of those birds that if i see i'm like oh wow like this this was a big day um Mm -hmm. we have them around but they're always they always find like just the most remote peninsula and a lake and you know they're always just solitary out on a branch over the water and so um that that one which was the idea of a sort of semi-corporeal kingfisher that kind of does that hovering behavior, but at a suborbital level and dives into, you know, mountain lakes to, to catch inscrutable, you know, otherworldly creatures um, and has a sonic boom when it comes through the clouds and like makes concentric rings of water vapor and, uh, but that's another one where it's a cryptid where I just took an animal I was fascinated with and and turned it up, you know, turned <laughs> turned up the knob to to like um you know, 11. So you have started out as the podcast but then you've expanded onto Twitter. Your tweets get shared in our group all the time. And it's always a delight to see them because they're always amazing little snippets of poetry. And now you have um some books out. So what is it like to transfer between the different platforms? Was it easier was it harder is there one that you prefer for you prefer the podcast for presenting information in one way or you prefer the books for presenting poems in another way how do they differ or are similar for you um it's all sort of under the same umbrella like when i started the podcast i remember i just picked up you know usernames on all of the major social media accounts and um i have sort of an attention span that draws me to short prose and and poetry anyway and so um i'm a team of one on the podcast so it takes me a while to get out podcast episodes um but i am i am constantly bombarded with thoughts that i want to send out in sort of the short form of i like working in twitter um which is funny. I don't like have any affection for Twitter as a platform. It's just that that um creative constraint of the character limit 
sort of makes me take a broader idea and think, okay, well, how can I make this clearer? How can I distill this down to um, its most essential words? Which is essentially the 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 function of what writing poetry is anyway. So um, a lot of the poems that wind up in collections often start with a kernel of an idea that started as a tweet because I had to like refine the language to get it down to the character limit so it wasn't a short essay on, you know, how I feel about foxfire or slime molds or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I don't know. I, I, I love them both for different reasons. They're different muscles. Um, like I um, I signed a book deal recently um, for Timber Press. It's a subsidiary of Hachette. And I'm writing a nonfiction book about, um, oh, it's sort of a memoir about my, my mental health struggles and connecting with nature and how one influences the other. And, um, you know, that kind of writing is very different from writing about the orbital kingfisher. And yet <laughs> they all feel kind of related, just even if they're just tied together by my own interests and concerns. Um so I love them both for different reasons. Um, you know, I have sort of intense um, attention deficit and chronic depression. And um, I've reached sort of a weird place where I, I'm now supported financially by the things I make. And so I, I suddenly have this weird freedom where I can kind of follow what I feel like doing on a, on a given day, um, which I'm still getting used to. But um, but um, yeah, it, it means I have sort of this weird, intense privilege all of a sudden to wake up and think, well, sometimes I do have deadlines, but often I can wake up and think, all right, well, what do I want to what do I want to experiment with today? Um, and, and that I feel like that's leading to some interesting work for me, um, but but in a fun and constructive way, I hope. Do you usually hear in your head when you're reading uh, or imagining your poetry and your, you know, your podcast and all your other work? Do you usually hear it in the same voice or do you hear it in different voices for different uh, mediums or projects? The poetry is me. I hear it in my voice. If I write anything for the crypto naturalist, I hear it in that character voice. Mm -hmm. Um, And that character kind of goes back to like Marty Stauffer. I mentioned old 90s and 80s nature show and... Um, I grew up in kind of a rural part of Ohio near a county that is officially part of Appalachia. And some people say, oh, you're doing like a southern accent. And I think like, well, it's not, it's just a backwoodsy accent. Like I know yeah. pe- knew people who kind of sounded like that. So, um, and I'm trying to capture that. <laughs> I'm try- I just had this image of this one scraggly bearded guy um when i was making up the podcast and so that's kind of the character voice for the the crypto naturalist and i honestly i've written an entire novel about the backstory of the crypto naturalist that i'm trying to find a home for right now that <laughs> awesome that that sort of fit, um describes where that guy is from and how he got to be the way he is which is weird well, that'd be a great read. Yeah, I was like super interested in that. That'd be it's, cool. It's coming. It's coming. All right. Okay. So you have you um, have published uh, two poetry books. Um, can you tell a little bit about that and um, yeah. and uh, maybe read a few of your your favorites? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I have two published poetry collections at the moment. The first is called Field Guide to the Haunted Forest. And the second that came out um, at the end of May is Love Notes from the Hollow Tree. Um, and favorites. Oh, boy. Let's see. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll start with... Um, let me read Clergy first. Um, clergy. Vultures are holy creatures, tending the dead, bowing low, bared head, whispers to cold flesh. Your old name is not your king. I rename you everything. That's a good one. I like that one. Yeah, you do a really good job of taking what might one might consider morbid or dark or frightening and reframing it into something beautiful. Thanks. Yeah, I... I... I'm trying to put that face on it. Um, also, and like, um, how to put this? I um, I sort of have no organized sort of religion in my life and never have. Um, and so, but I am interested in the idea of the sacred. And I'm interested in coming to that concept through um, science, through sort of Im an empirical doorway that we can look at and sort of imbue with meaning in our own ways um, as a path to sort of a larger sense of sacred meaning rather than, um, you know, metaphor or, or sort of mythology, um, just sort of a different take on how we, how we can come to that kind of idea of the sacred, sacred through meeting nature where it is and through um, noticing essentially. I was gonna say I like the vulture one because I feel like vultures and other organisms that that are involved in like recycling the growth or you know death into new life is like always like just such an un, like a, a cool part of nature that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough. Like I worked in an area and there was um, a snake that had died and it was just like on the path. I think a hawk probably dropped it or something. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna move it off the path here, but then into a space that I know it so I can come back and like watch it as it decomposes and like all the different beetles that came in like burying beetles where they take it and they bury it underground it's like nature has such incredible little cleanup crews of recycling the nutrients so nothing gets wasted going back to the soil or the, you know um flies or any or like fungus which like it might to some people be um gross or morbid or something but I think it's like a really cool way that you know things get turned into other things and the cycle continues and it's like a really cool way of of you know the sort of un unsung heroes of recycling those nutrients and continuing the cycle on didn't you have yeah. a didn't you have a poem about um borrowing carbon something something along those lines i'm sure i did <laughs> I, I have one open here uh, on similar lines, though, about water. I could read that one if you like. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, this one's from Field Guide. It's called uh, Naming the River. Uh, the water in your body is just visiting. It was a thunderstorm a week ago. It will be an ocean soon enough. Most of your cells come and go like morning dew. We are more weather pattern than stone monument, sunlight on mist, summer lightning. Your choices outweigh your substance. Um, yeah, I, and I like that idea too, just as like a living thinking being, that it's like the matter of your body that, that holds up your consciousness 
isn't isolated. It's in conversation with your environment around you. So the you that matters is sort of the you that is um, exercising choices, you know, agency. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also comforting to sort of to think of yourself not as kind of an island beset by nature and oh there's a ticking clock on mortality but like if you're a raindrop that's falling toward the ocean you know the ocean wasn't really um diminished by you becoming an individual raindrop and you're not really diminished when you rejoin the ocean it's 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 kind of a way to think about um that kind of whole, that process, that weather, those patterns you're part of as, as a comfort, not something that um, you're um, raging against, which is sometimes how, how we look at mortality and, you know, life and death and, and impermanence. You know, I think a lot of people struggle with impermanence in so many different ways with so many different flavors of anxiety. There was a Hank Green video that I saw the other day that this reminds me of a little bit. Um, because someone asked him what state of matter is fire. Um, and he spent a long time, uh, apparently he, he was a chemist before he was a YouTuber, but he was like, I don't know. And he spent a really long time, like just mulling that over and kind of being annoyed that he didn't, couldn't figure out the answer. Um, and what he came to is basically that um, it doesn't make sense to describe fire as a thing in the same way that you would describe like a cup or a, you know even like a volume of air or water or something it's not a state doesn't have a state of matter it's more like a waterfall where it's a process yeah um, and and it, it just reminds me of that because it's kind of saying that life is like that too and life forms are kind of like that too i found i found yeah. i found what i was thinking of and it wasn't one of yours this is actually from the subreddit uh shower thoughts of just people the deep thoughts you think of in the shower and somebody hmm. said, the atoms that make up my body aren't mine. It's just my time to use them. And then somebody yeah. replied with, I just love how somebody can go from profound to shit post in 0.5 seconds. Somebody replied with, mom says it's my turn with the carbon. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like that really beautiful idea Carl Sagan will bring up about how like, we're all made of stardust. It's all the same elements. It's all the same atoms. My favorite uh, Carl Sagan quote is, uh, we're a way for the cosmos to know itself. Yeah. yeah. Like, whoa. <laughs> wild wild green memes for existentialist fiends tonight, guys. <laughs> wild wow. space memes for existential dreams. Yeah. That's that's kind of what you get if you invite me on your podcast. <laughs> we sure. love it. <laughs> I um I have a poem somewhere where I, I sort of push back a little sometimes against that Carl Sagan idea. Not that I don't like it. I just occasionally want to complicate it by saying that um that our way of knowing is the human way of knowing. And I, I like to think that like the human way of knowing isn't necessarily at the top of the pyramid of ways of knowing like, okay, if a mountain doesn't have neurons to learn our name for it, is it somehow ignorant or is it, is it perfect in its knowledge? Just that knowledge without thought, just sort of like the wholeness of the mountain. Does the mountain not know what it is because it can't measure itself in feet? It's, yeah, it's yeah. it's like if you if you think human ways of knowing are like the only knowing and everything else is sort of like silence and ignorance, then it's then dying and coming be, becoming part of sort of the natural cycles again may be a huge loss. Whereas if you think of you know sort of knowledge without thought, um, I, I sometimes get wrapped up in that concept because 
you know, like the human brain evolved to keep the human body alive, right? To recognize patterns and look for threats. So it's all very much um, machinery centered on that that evolutionary function. But that doesn't mean that like our interpretation of, of, of the world and measurements and language and is the only way that that um, awareness can happen. I've thought, I've thought about that a lot with um, time. I've like, since I was a young kid, I've been fascinated by deep time and the concept of infinity. And just the, the like the universe is like 13.7 billion years old, yet the concept of measuring time didn't really or at least measuring time in, in human terms didn't really come across until humans arrived super late on the scene. So like that might as well have been like a second that, that those the span of billions of years, because unless, unless we're, there's other older civilizations in the universe that we don't know about, no one's measuring it. So like it's, a, yeah. yeah, you're, yeah. you're just, it's, it's kind of, it's so abstract once you, once you start, thinking beyond a human human scope yeah and that's something i also think about with regards to how we study cognition like cognitive abilities in other animals because really what you're because like because of our limited uh this very Kantian way of thinking really what you're measuring is your perception of cognition and like animals that you perceive as highly intelligent it's just that those are animals that found a way to communicate with you or communicate or like communicate in a way that you recognize mm-hmm. or, 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 you know, they're able to problem solve in a way that you recognize. Right. Versus like an ant colony, they problem solve, but they're also not like, uh, it, it's more like a, like a super organism a, type a, deal. You so, yes. It's a you sociality thing. Like you social organisms are really like fascinating in that regard because they, they manage to make it work. And also like, like like a, a worm, they just get along just fine. You know, an earthworm gets along just fine. Yeah, I, you're you're touching on a subject. I have a poem here for. Let me let me hit Perfect. it real quick. <laughs> uh, this poem's called "Not to Brag." It's a little silly. Not to brag. Hey, we're humans, a pretty young species. You've probably heard of us. We're the top life form on Earth. You can tell because of smartphones and toilets and such. Sure, we need older creatures to make all our food and oxygen, but that's all. Oh, and we need them to live in our guts to help us digest things, but it's not a big deal. We're on top. We know because we've said so. Oh, we're also the smartest. That's important. Smart is a word we invented using our smarts. It's a measure of it's a measure of how well any creature can do things humans value via methods we understand. Simple, right? I assure you, we're very smart and very in charge. I love it. People, I have, you know, non-wildlife friends who sometimes will be like, oh, like, what is smarter, like a dog or like an octopus? And I'm like, well, depends on what you mean by smart. If you ask an octopus to open a jar, you'd be like, wow, an octopus can do that. That's smart. But a dog's not going to be able to open the jar. Or if you're like a dog find this thing by smell alone and like dig it up and then like an octopus might not be able to do that so it's like all relative to what humans perceive or like the the brain is the only organ that named itself (laughs) so you know everything is just sort of like we created our own little world well or you think of a tree like is a tree smart you can stick it in the ground it can stand there naked for 200 years feeding itself with dirt and sunlight and rainwater like it, uh, it, a, tr- a tree will move out of the way. 
a tree will move out of the way. You know, if you're <laughs> if you're stuffing the trees away, it'll be like, oh, I got I got to move. I got. I got mm-hmm. you know? yeah. so I, yeah. I'm I'm thinking back to a, a quote from um, Douglas Adams from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where it says. Man had always assumed that he was more intelligent than dolphins because he had achieved so much. The wheel, New York, wars, and so on. Whilst (laughs) all the dolphins had ever done was muck about in the water having a good time. But conversely, the dolphins had always believed they were far more intelligent than man for precisely the same reasons. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, A good example of that is, I know you brought it up with octopuses, like cephalopods. Cephalopods are seen... Like, they're another one of those animals that are seen as highly intelligent, at least for an invertebrate. But most cephalopod species are annual, meaning like they live, they live one year. And it's like they live, they, they, they live the one year, they have sex the one time, and then they die. And, and, don't just, have, <laughs> and there's no cultural exchange. Yeah. Like, yeah. Between, yeah, exactly. between they're, they're generations. They're making it all up from scratch every time. If they lived longer, exactly. they would be too powerful, so they had to be exactly. nerfed. Otherwise, <laughs> they would be the true number one organism on the planet. <laughs> Nature nerfed the octopus to die they after did. sex, so it wouldn't. OP. OP. Yeah, I mean, but but that's again, we're so we're using anthro anthrocentric anthropocentric lens on it, right? It's like, but why aren't they trying to build nations and legacy and you know it's like well, that's our priority that doesn't mean it it necessarily is the priority that makes sense you know um let me let me move let me shift a little bit here cuz like i've talked a lot about recognizing what is fascinating in nature and and our connection to nature and so then like then i like to move to sort of the mental health facet where it's like all right most of us know how to appreciate nature so how do we then turn that sort of kindness and appreciation back on ourselves? Um, so this is a poem from Field Guide, uh, Woodland You. It's easy to look at the contours of a forest and feel a bone-deep love for nature. It's less easy to remember that the contours of your own body represent the exact same nature, the pathways of your mind, your dreams, dark and strange as sprouts curling beneath a flat rock, your regret, bitter as the citrus rot of old-cut grass. It's the same as the nature you make time to love, that you practice loving. The forest, the meadow, the sweeping arm of a galaxy. You are as natural as any postcard landscape and deserve the same love. Because I see a lot of people who can who can feel that sort of internal generosity and kindness and love for objects in the natural world, but then they build up these strange artificial divides between what they consider themselves and what they consider the natural world. And like, those are totally artificial and learning to, to apply that same generosity of spirit and same kindness and love to ourselves as if we were the meadow or the Cooper's Hawk or the vulture like that, that seems to me like the next step you take when you're, when you're kind of learning to embrace a, a worldview that, that centers the important of nature, importance of nature. And then, and then positions yourself within that, that nature, you know, Something related to that that you said on your podcast that I really liked uh, when I was listening to it a few days ago was um, it was in response to people feeling powerless in the face of all the issues in the world. Um, And you said at some point that feeling as though you're somehow deficient for 
being unable to solve world crises is like feeling like you should be supervising the conversion of hydrogen into helium in the sun. And I yeah. just paused <laughs> it and was like, whoa, <laughs> when I heard that, like I had to rewind it and think about it again. Yeah, people, you know, news is often couched sort of in a format that talks about global outcomes. And I understand why that is. But none of us chatting here today have our hands on the levers of global outcomes. Not in the same way, not with the same ease. You can just sum them up. You know, I often picture it sort of as this huge rock, right? And a lot of us want to roll the rock in a specific direction. Well, you don't do that by smashing your body against the rock. You do that by, like, taking care of yourself and your strength and pressing on the rock in the direction you want it to go and you hope that enough other people are also pressing like but if you ram yourself into the rock again and again like you know you're just going to destroy yourself um you have to sort of respect your own natural wants and needs and the biological imperative of of rest and recuperation and and keeping an eye on the good parts of life because you know, especially with social media, you know, the algorithms have figured out that fear and rage hold your attention a lot more than, than pleasantries, which, which makes sense, I think, evolutionarily speaking, because it's like you scan the tree line for threats. But so I think it gives us kind of a, um, I, I think I think it's in their financial interest for everybody to be panicked all the time in a way that I think is very damaging for all of us. And I think if you're interested in saving the world and pursuing justice and stuff, you kind of also owe it to yourself to still take a little time to focus on the good parts of life and like pleasure and rest and art and the things that the things that are good about the world that you're trying to save, you know. And global outcomes, I mean, that's just classic. So if you deal with like chronic depression, <laughs> like like I do, you have to spend a lot of time recognizing what you do and don't control because you can spiral um, in some very dark directions on obsessing about things you have no control over, what other people think, the future, you know, and, and huge global outcomes very much fall into that category, I think. Which isn't to say... I know some people see that and think like, oh, you know, Jared's um, advocating surrender or retreat. And it's like, I'm not. What I'm saying is you apportion, you know, you give yourself a portion of noble work to do and you do it realistically in a way that takes care of yourself and your life and your sanity. And then you think to yourself, I did the plan. Like I, I did the work. Like now I also am owed rest and, and pleasure and, and happiness. It's kind of like when you were talking about moving the boulder, it reminded me back to like ants moving stuff around. Like one ant is not going to be able to move the cheese puff into, you know, the anthill. <laughs> you need a whole team of ants to help move the cheese puff. And then, you know, people tag in and tag out. So it's sometimes it feels like impossible to hoist the cheese puff by yourself but you have to just remember that if you it's it's going to be happen with a group of people yeah yeah and i see people sort of get crushed thinking that they have to move the cheese puff by themselves mm. 
And it's like, no, yeah, that's, like, that's it's got it's got high it's got high caloric density. You can't yeah. eat that keeps by yourself. Yeah. It's yeah. gonna be that's gonna be a sticky orange death for you. Yeah, right? you can't yeah. you can't let yourself be crushed by the puff, you know, you gotta yeah. Get, yeah. Your, get your super organ your you social friends and and help you out. You social network. <laughs> yeah. If there's one message of today, it's you gotta be realistic about the puff, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you gotta be realistic about the puff. I, I have a shockingly i have a related poem you want me to hit it absolutely so this this is a poem from the new collection um okay for scythia as for scythia grows tall its branches bend beneath their own weight bowing to the ground in arches of yellow flowers wherever they touch the earth the branches root again and send up new shoots stitching gold across the landscape some new kinds of knowledge shift our center of gravity staggering us bending us low beneath the burden if you think of your worldview as a stone tower this shift is a cataclysm of splintered rock if your worldview is for scythia then every startling truth that bends you low becomes a new connection to the earth a new way to stand an invitation to grow we live in a time of strong wind and sudden pressure it is not an age for towers it is an age for stubborn flowers. I like that one a lot. Thanks. This is um, coming from somebody who's tried to fight for Scythia a lot, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That that would be one of those, the, um, you know, some disgruntled kid in, like, 10th grade English class would be like, it's not deep, it's just someone who hates gardening or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that there's the layers to it. Well, it's. I think we all know people who like um, get so protective of, of, of their worldview. I mean, I see so much sort of hate that I feel like comes from people who are just not willing to have a conversation with their, their worldview. Um, just like, well, I didn't know anybody like that when I was a, kid 50 years ago so i'm gonna label them a monster or something it's just like uh, learn to change with new information that's not a character flaw like i was just gonna say i have to do it all the time you know i i was raised in a little rural white alcove in the rust belt like um and I, I've seen people from my past be like, well, this is what this is what the world is supposed to be like, and I'm going to angrily fight for it. And it's just like, why don't you let your world be bigger and more complicated? And you don't have to understand everything. You don't even have to have an opinion on everything. Like, you can say, I don't know enough about this to have an opinion. And, like, it seems like we've made that a weakness, and it's not. That's just, you know, being intellectually honest. Um uh, yeah, I mean, and yeah, in, in, in my opinion, in my, in, in, I am a kill. In, in my humble opinion, uh, if if you don't walk around the world, and if you don't change your mind several times a day, you're not really engaging with the world. Right. You're not engaging. You know. You're in defense you're yourself, mode. Maybe, but, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which is not a good way to live. I, in my in my opinion, it's not a great way to live. It's not a great way to like experience the world because then you're not experiencing anything and 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 i feel like there's a huge lack of creative empathy like you got to be able to have empathy and appreciate um human experiences that are outside your immediate field of experiences too like 
like that's not a threat to you you know it's it's yeah i i want i want more people to be for scythia and <laughs> in their opinion of themselves in the world to be able to be sort of stubborn and adaptive um and then still bother to put out yellow flowers every spring so jared do you have uh one more poem for us today i mean i sure could play us out oh boy hold on let me find something yeah no pressure gotta just be do a big finale (laughs) okay hold on okay i'm gonna read orcas somewhere there are orcas I'm in my little gray house in Ohio, surrounded by the stale air of winter indoors, but somewhere there are orcas. It's an easy fact to forget. It's easy to shrink your world to what you can see. But thankfully, somewhere there are orcas. Sometimes my world is all sun-faded plastic scrawled along the roadside in a scribble of petty meanness, but somewhere there are orcas. We all know facts that are as inert as chalk dust, but some knowledge is medicine. Oh, it's a nice, a nice little reminder. There are workers out there. Jared, thanks for coming on the podcast today. If people want to see your stuff, where do they go? Uh, sure. I'm, I'm Crypto Naturalist on all of the major social media platforms or at CryptoNaturalist.com. Um, you can find links to my poetry collections there and under books, and you can also stream the podcast from cryptonaturalist.com or YouTube or anywhere you find podcasts. And we'll have links to all of those things in the description of this episode as well. So that's our show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Rhett. I'm Iona. I'm Curtis. I'm Leroy. I'm Jared. And happy Year of the Mushroom. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash wildgreenmemes. That's memes with an M. Patrons get gifts in the mail, early episode releases, and of course, a shout out on the podcast. This week, we'd like to thank Yelena Koval, Kate Estrop, Sharon S. Rapp, Jonathan Muser, Mylan Schmalen, Amaral Rose, Aletta, Noor, Lizzie Schultz, Kimberly Reynolds, Olivia Boone, Liz F., Krista Hannon, Riley, G. Law, Deb Fox Weiss, Amanda, Siobhan Power, Jamie Lee, Evan Waite, Sonia Desdemal, Kevin Ritter, Randy LaPearl, Sam Capriva, Diana Smith, Lauren, and Muthstradamus.